You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Dan Diamond, a national health reporter at The Post. And today I'm joined by New York City Health Commissioner, Dr. Ashwin Vasan, to discuss the monkeypox outbreak. Dr. Vasan, welcome to Washington Post Live. Thanks for having me, Dan. And remember, we always want to hear from you, our listeners and viewers. You can share your thoughts and questions by tweeting at Post Live. Let's start with the basics, Commissioner. Polls show that many Americans still have questions about monkeypox, who's at risk. So briefly, what is this virus and how is it spreading? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. There is a lot of either lack of information or confusion around this virus. And so it's important to start with the basics. Um, MPV, or what's being known as monkeypox, is um, an orthopox virus. It's related to smallpox, but not as severe traditionally. And it is a virus that's passed almost primarily through contact with pox-like lesions that can develop around the body. Um, and transmit to someone who doesn't have the disease. Um, it is um, requires really close skin-to-skin -skin contact but for relatively prolonged periods of time. Um, so that means the casual brushing against someone or shaking of hands um, shouldn't be, and we're not seeing it as, a primary mode of transmission. Now, monkeypox is an old virus. It is a virus that's existed, or at least we've known about since the 1970s, mostly um, endemic to West and Central Africa. And that strain of the virus has um, really circulated without a whole lot of intervention in that area. But from the, global, from the global North and the West's point of view, we haven't really treated it as something of concern for us. Um, until now. Starting in May, we saw cases enter into Western Europe and really enter into a new population, which is men who have sex with men, gay men, who, um, uh, social, whose social and sexual networks have become the primary route of transmission in this outbreak in Western Europe and here in North America. For the general public, though, um, you know, this really isn't about identities, it's about behaviors. And as I said, it's prolonged skin-to-skin -skin contact that um, drives transmission of this virus. And so for the vast majority of Americans, they're not at risk of, of this uh, virus, And which is why we're also, as a public health officials, really targeting our approaches and targeting our messaging to the behaviors and to the communities that are most impacted at this time. Well, Commissioner, as you talk about risk and transmission, I'd like to read you a question we got from Twitter. The user asks, how long a time is there between touching a surface infected with the virus and contracting it? I do housekeeping. I'd like to know if I have time to disinfect my arms after handling soiled linens. Can you speak at all to that issue? Yeah, so much like we have seen with smallpox, the related virus, monkeypox, MPV, can transmit through linens and clothing that have been worn for by someone with active lesions. And so the question from the from the reader is a is a really good one. What we ask is that exposure to infected um, linens and clothing be minimized largely through wearing gloves, uh, if possible, um, and creating a barrier to exposure. 
Um, but what we'll also say is that in general, um, you know, on surfaces, on sort of hard surfaces like desks or keyboards or um, and so forth, this is not we're seeing a primary mode of transmission. So, you know, sitting at the same desk as someone or sharing a keyboard or working in the same office environment isn't isn't really a primary mode of transmission and doesn't really represent a a high risk environment, which is you know similar to what we were dealing with at the early days of COVID when we weren't sure about how transmission was was occurring. We were washing our groceries or cleaning off surfaces, thinking that those could be primary routes of transmission. Here we know that these are not primary routes of transmission. And so, you know, what I would do is just reassure the reader that, you know, as long as you're wearing gloves and touching linens or touching services, I think you're, you've got a high level of protection against acquiring monkeypox. The other question that um, comes up in her question, the other issue that comes up in her question is, is incubation. And one of the other challenges with monkeypox is that it's not a short incubation like three days or five days or a week with COVID. It's up to 21 days, sometimes a month before someone who has been exposed develops symptoms. And so that can also lead to um, difficulties in sort of tracing contacts and, and figuring out when exposure happened versus disease. Um, but it's also something to be aware of. If you think you've been exposed um, and you think you've been exposed without protection, the best thing to do is to you know, be aware and call your provider and get mm -hmm. tested or get evaluated. I want to think more broadly now about where we are in this spread. The first confirmed case of monkeypox in the U.S. was detected less than three months ago. Now there are more than 10,000 confirmed cases. About one in five are in New York, making your city the epicenter. So, Commissioner, where are we in the course of this outbreak? Is this the beginning? the middle, are we getting anywhere near the end? It's a really interesting question because from the beginning, we haven't really had enough testing at hand. And so for an epidemiologist, it's, a, it's an extraordinarily hard position to be in to try to wrap your arms around an epidemic without really understanding what the denominator is and, and what's out there in terms of transmission. Now we've seen testing ramp up over the last month in particular. So we are doing a significant amount of testing and we are seeing cases uh, increase. But over the last week, I think we've seen the velocity of that case increase or the number of, you know, the day on day increase kind of start to ebb a little bit. It's too early to tell whether we're reaching, we're even anywhere near a peak. Um, but I would say that we're somewhere in the middle, right? I think we still have a chance to slow this down, which is why we've been so aggressive on um, vaccination and primary prevention. Um, especially targeted at the most at-risk communities. Um, but, you know, I think we're still weeks, if not months away from really seeing a sustained decline um, in case transmission. And so we, have, we still have a lot of work to do. The accompanying fear isn't just about cases spreading, it's about this virus becoming permanent in the United States. Former FDA Commissioner Scott Gottlieb, others have said, we're on the verge of that potentially happening. Are you tracking any indicators, Commissioner? Is there some number, some other signal that you're looking at to know whether monkeypox has become permanently entrenched in your city in the U.S.? Well, you know, as we have to follow the data and follow the epidemiology, and right now the vast majority of cases in New York City and around the country are contained within um, a subset of populations. That's largely men who have sex with men, trans people who have 
uh, similar sexual networks, and some gender non-conforming people who are also in this in similar with similar sexual exposures, which means multiple and or anonymous partners in the last several weeks, putting you at higher risk. That's really where we're seeing the bulk of transmission happen. Now, I know we're talking about individual cases where, um, you know, uh, in children or in, in other non-members of people who are not members of those populations. The good news is, is that given the nature of transmission, um, meaning it's a much harder virus to transmit, and the fact that we have a preventive tool, we have a test and a treatment, um, the fact is that we can interrupt those chains of transmission in a way that, frankly, is much harder for something like COVID, which is an airborne, respiratory, fast-moving virus where contact tracing is um, extraordinarily challenging. Um, so we do have an opportunity to slow this down. And I don't think we're near endemicity yet, but I do think the choices we make and the, the aggression with which we attack this over the coming weeks and several months will, make, will play a big part into determining whether that becomes the reality. Obviously, looking at where cases are outside of the primary at-risk group is a pretty good sign of whether a virus is becoming more widely endemic. In terms of attacking this outbreak, you mentioned a few minutes ago, there were some challenges getting testing up and running. I've spoken to health officials in your city who've talked about the barriers in getting treatment, TPOX, out to the population. And your boss, New York City Mayor Eric Adams, about a month ago, wrote to President Biden, laying out his concerns about the national response and, and asking for more vaccines. What do you need now? What does your city need now from the Biden administration to make your response stronger? It's a, it's a great question. And number one, I just want to start with how difficult the situation has been and how grateful we are to our federal partners for all of their support. That said, I totally understand the frustration of the American public and of the most affected communities with the fact that you know we had a vaccine in hand, we had a test that we knew of, we had a treatment available to us, and it became harder and harder to roll those things out quickly. So, so both things are true. You know, we we are very grateful for the um, support and partnership of our federal partners, but the frustration amongst the public in terms of the speed is is warranted. And we've been we've been there too. This is um, something that we experience every day in New York, and which is part of the reason why we got out ahead and. Um, started vaccinating people in June because we knew that we had to start interrupting these chains of transmission and really um, reducing risk um, quickly. And so I think as a country, um, I'm proud to say that New York was really pushing the envelope and leading the way um, and stimulating the, the robust national response that we're now seeing come to life. That said, you know, we are running a response against COVID concurrently. As you know, in New York City, we now have um, polio cases, um, or at least we have a polio case in upstate New York and some evidence of wastewater sampling here in New York City and beyond. And we have uh, MPV, monkeypox, to deal with. That requires federal resources to mount the kind of scale and speed and equitable response that New Yorkers and people demand of us and expect of us. And so we're grateful to President Biden for declaring a state of emergency, a public health emergency, because it allows us to talk about FEMA reimbursable funds to build 
um, at least temporary public health infrastructure to allow us to um, vaccinate the hundreds of thousands of people who might be at risk to um, get people tested and treated at scale. I mean, more concretely, I think we're, we're encouraged by um, increasing vaccine supply. We would obviously love um, reduced barriers to accessing treatment. It's not a question of supply, but it is a question of, of safety and regulation. And so we're talking a lot with our federal partners at the FDA around what they could do to make the application process for TPOX simplified. They've already taken some steps in that direction. And we are seeing commercial labs really step up around testing, which is which is a great thing. So I think we are seeing the response ramp up, but we're, we're going to need those resources to maintain it, um, let alone the idea of creating something more permanent for the future. Commissioner, you've mentioned vaccine supply several times. The New York Times recently reported that even as hundreds and thousands, hundreds of thousands of doses were stuck in Denmark, there were many men in your city clamoring for vaccines across the month of June, Pride Month. Yes or no, could the Biden administration have moved faster to get you vaccines when you needed them then? I think we all could have moved faster, right? This is a collective effort. This is a collective response. What could New York City have done to move faster? Well, we had our supply that we had, which was limited. Um, you know, maybe we could have gotten more. Maybe we could have pushed for more. Um, I don't know. New York know. City could we, have pushed for more vaccines from, from the we, Biden administration or? We, we did what we could with what we had at the time. But I think collectively, you know, we needed to turn on this response. And I'm very grateful that it's turned on now. Um, back in June, we, we saw the same things you're describing. We saw Pride Month. We saw um, increasing anxiety and worry. We saw a slight uptick in cases, even if um, in an environment of low testing, which is why we launched the first extended pet clinic in the country. And I think because of that, we're here talking about this as a national response strategy. The Washington Post broke the news last night that Bavarian Nordic, the manufacturer of the only FDA-approved vaccine for monkeypox, has safety concerns about a new Biden administration plan to start splitting up doses and injecting them in a different way. Do you have any concerns about this new Biden administration plan? Are you going to tell your own health workers to follow this strategy? We're, look, I think we are in an emergency. We've declared it. We declared it here in New York City. We declared it at Governor Hochul, declared it in New York State. Multiple states and cities have done around the country. And obviously, the Biden administration has done so as well, the Biden-Harris administration. And so um, we're in a position where we have to make um, tough choices. And in this um, particular situation, what we have is encouraging data that suggests that uh, a revised dosing um, an administration procedure can actually extend the supply that we currently have. Um, and so I'm encouraged by the data that I've seen, but it doesn't, like anything, any sort of mid-course mid correction or midstream course correction, it requires real thoughtfulness with respect to um, the technical issues around it, the safety issues around it, the feasibility, the training and staffing needed to, to um, dose the vaccine reliably, the storage conditions, all the supply chain management issues around it. Um, so those are all real things which we're wrestling with as we speak and trying to figure out the best way to potentially roll this out. Obviously, the top line is that it extends our supply in dramatic ways to 
potentially reach demand, to reach much more than the demand that um, we may be seeing in the country, which is a good thing and it's coming from a good place. Now, like any sort of um, new protocol, new clinical protocol, we need to test it. We need to study it as we're doing it, much as we did with COVID vaccines. We must do vaccine efficacy trials. So we've been, uh, you know, we've been talking to our federal partners about those very things. How can New York City contribute to those trials um, and to ensure we're doing so safely, we're doing so responsibly, and we're looking at not just the immediate effects, but the medium and long-term uh, implications of employing this strategy. We're in a difficult situation, but I think this effort to do intradermal dosing is um, trying to make the best out of a difficult situation using a really strong basis of data, at least as limited as it might be. Shifting from vaccine strategy to just messaging around the outbreak, city health official Don Weiss said he was demoted after raising concerns about your department's communication of monkeypox, specifically that the department failed to warn gay men about the risks of anonymous sex. Now, I, I can guess what you'll say, that you can't comment on personnel moves, but I wanted to address his specific complaint that your department should have urged gay men to temporarily cut back on anonymous sex, given that's how the virus has spread. Could the health department have been more direct, more explicit earlier in this response on its warnings to gay men? I think one has to take a historical view when giving out any sort of behavioral, especially sexual behavioral advice to a community that's had their sexual behaviors and social behaviors dissected, stigmatized, discriminated against, and judged mostly by heterosexual people for decades. And that has real legal and social implications as well for them. So we're, in, we're exceedingly um, you know, mindful of that. And we take every sort of caution and precaution to make sure that when we are deciding on messaging, we're doing so in the most responsible way that meets the needs of the community. I think there's separate to that an active scientific debate about um, you know, the presence of MPV monkeypox virus in sexual fluids. Is it a formal STI versus something that is simply transmitted through the uh, close skin to skin contact of sexual and intimate contact? These are open clinical debates that are happening at the WHO, that are happening at the CDC, that are happening at health departments all across the country. And so, you know, we've been having that debate and we're happy to have that debate. I think it's always a balance, right? It's always a balance to be able to say, these are the behaviors that are putting people most at risk without sort of calling people out, judging and stigmatizing the community that might be associated with those behaviors. And that's the balance we've been trying to strike from the beginning. And I think, um, you know, we're seeing some success. You've called for changing the name of the virus, saying that monkeypox is, quote, potentially stigmatizing. Why is changing the name of monkeypox a priority in the midst of this outbreak? Well, we can walk and chew gum at the same time. So, you know, I wrote a letter to the WHO. It doesn't take that long to write a letter. And so as we're doing our operational work, as we're doing our um, rollout of the vaccine, we raised up this issue because language matters, choice of language matters. Um, we know that this is, this is not just an issue of politics and jargon. This is an issue of public health because we know that stigmatizing language, racist language, um, demonizing language can push people further into the shadows, cause them to delay seeking care, 
and ultimately worsen health outcomes. You know, we can look back at the HIV epidemic, which wasn't called HIV in its early days. It was called gay-related immune deficiency, causing a great deal of stigma to the gay community. We can look at COVID-19, which was pejoratively referred to as the Asian flu or Kung flu, and the impact that had on uh, Asian American communities and rise in Asian American hate in this country. And so, you know, why, when we have a name that has really no accuracy, it has no descriptive um, impact or no descriptive benefit, um, doesn't accurately describe anything about the virus or the symptoms itself, why not try to choose a name that's more neutral, that can be widely understood, and that doesn't call out or affiliate any sort of either racist or stigmatizing language with um, a particular community group. Just a quick follow-up, your health department, your Twitter feed, I think you've said the term monkeypox several times during this interview. If it's potentially stigmatizing, why keep using the term? Well, internally here at the health department, we are using MPV as much as possible. Um, we're also mindful of not trying to course correct multiple times. It's why I wrote the letter to the WHO. Ultimately, the WHO can change the nomenclature for the globe. They're, they created the nomenclature COVID-19, which was adopted widely around the globe. And so we're hopeful they'll decide on something soon that we can all adopt. Meanwhile, you know, we're using the things that will cause the least amount of confusion um, and hopeful that a change will be made that can reduce stigma. Commissioner, you mentioned earlier polio, a reminder of the many threats well beyond monkeypox. I'd, I'd like to just spend a moment on that now. A man in New York several weeks ago tested positive for polio. The state health department has said that potentially hundreds of people have been infected. What are you doing in New York City to detect polio? And do you have any data yet on its potential spread? Well, I think as the state health commissioner, Dr. Mary Bassett noted in her press release, and as we've um, you know, published on our websites with um, polio vaccination rates across New York City by zip code and otherwise, there are certain areas of our city and certain areas of our state that have low rates of polio vaccination coverage of children. That is three doses that most of us get um, in order to go to school. So there are some communities that have chosen and there are some um, neighborhoods and places that have chosen not to um, emphasize vaccination in the same way. And so now is our chance to redouble that effort to to really target messaging, to target outreach, to target support, and to obviously distribute vaccine to provide trusted providers in the most affected communities. You know, we have some communities in New York City with polio coverage rates as low as 56%. And so um, that's, that's really troubling. We need at least 80% to achieve any sort of uh, herd immunity for polio. And so, um, you know, we must, we must redouble our efforts. We are tracking this through mainly wastewater um, surveillance. And as Dr. Bassett said, and others have said, you know, a case of uh, par paralytic polio um, usually is um, a sign that there's community transmission going on. And that's been confirmed by our wastewater sampling. So we're really redoubling our efforts. I know the CDC has sent resources to Rockland County to help, um, and we're redoubling our efforts in the city to get ahead of this. This is also a very personal issue for me. My, you know, my 
uh, aunt, my dad's sister, died in India of polio when she was in medical school. My uncle, who's still alive, has paralysis, has paralytic polio, and has is disabled as a result of it. And so um, it's just, it, it is discouraging, of course, that we're talking about diseases that were close to eradicated um, in recent memory. And, and I think this is a call to action for all of us around immunization. The COVID-19 pandemic and all of the misinformation and disinformation that's been circulating around the vaccines has really impacted certain communities more than others and is leading to an overall vaccine hesitancy that we haven't seen in decades. And it's having impact across a whole host of diseases we're seeing. Now is our time to really redouble our efforts around childhood immunizations and getting kids in particular back to school in the fall and getting up to date on all of their vaccines. Well, you mentioned kids going back to school in the fall. You mentioned COVID. I'd like to put that together. COVID continues to circulate. There are about 4,000 new cases per day in New York City, I understand. That's higher than the caseload from much of last school year. The true number is almost certainly above that because many tests aren't being reported. Are you thinking about bringing back mask mandates in schools for this coming year? I think we have to really reassess where we are today versus where we've been. A case of COVID and its impact on human health is different today in July 2022, August 2022 versus even January 2022, certainly from March 2020. And we we recognize that that's because of, number one, a high wall of immunity that's been built up through vaccination. Here in New York City, we've given out more than 18 million um, vaccines to New Yorkers. Um, a, A significant number of people infected and the transient at least transient immunity that develops as a result of that. And of course, advances in treatment, advances in care and treatment um, that is uh, enabling us to treat people early, keep them out of the hospital, and even if they are hospitalized to prevent um, severe illness and death. And so over the last several months um, in the spring wave, as well as um, this summer, we've seen a real break for the first time in the epidemic, uh, in the pandemic, between case transmission rate and severe illness. Um, And so we have to take that into account and we have to decide when is the right time to, on the basis of what data, to re-implement population-wide prevention strategies. It was right and appropriate in March and April of 2020 to introduce those, that guidance, whether it was uh, mask mandates or population vaccine mandates, Those were all the right things to do in a time of emergency. I don't think we're in an emergency right now. We are maybe somewhere in between emergency and endemicity. I don't know where we are in that journey. Um, I'm encouraged by the fact that in our city and in places all across the country, cases are uh, falling. Um, But the fact that severe illness, the fact that hospitalizations, and the fact that the impact overall on human health and society is lessening is a good thing, and it causes us to reassess where we are in terms of the data and when to pull out those those policies, like mask mandates that you're describing. Well, unfortunately, Doctor, we are wrapping on time. Thank you so much for joining Washington Post Live, Dr. Vassan. Thanks, Dan. Appreciate you having me. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.